Amen. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you all here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor here, and uh, it is a delight to be here with you all this morning. So glad that you have joined us. Uh, one thing, just before we dive into uh, the word this morning, just want to let you know about what's going to be happening as part of our Lent season. So if you have a Lent guide, you can open it up, and there's some information in there. And part of what has been traditionally, uh, well, the preparation for Lent has been fasting. So if, if you're unfamiliar with what fasting is, looks like, essentially what it is, is just uh, abstaining from something in particular. Uh, could be food, could be coffee, could be chocolate, could be social media, whatever it is, uh, for a period of time in order to use that time to dedicate yourself to the Lord. So if you open your, your guide, there, there's actually a whole list of different things that you can be fasting from. And so we're going to actually encourage you just to join with us in that. So as the pastoral team, we've committed each week, we're going to be following along in this guide, fasting from something different each week. So you can see week one is food. So if you'd like to participate with us, uh, we'd love for you to join us. That can either be maybe like one day, you just fast from food for an entire day, or maybe you, for the week, you know, you leave off one meal, you skip lunch or dinner, whatever that might be for that week. And so using that time just to say, you know what, I, this is something I, I need, something I want, but what I want more is that God would impact my heart, that God would be speaking to me. So really, that's what we want to engage. I want to encourage you to, inv uh, to join with us during this time of Lent as we prepare ourselves for the coming of Easter. Just consider how can we be, uh, as a church, knitting together and seeking after God. So I want to encourage you to join with us uh, in that. We'll let you know kind of each week what this particular theme is. But for this week, we're going to invite you fast from food, maybe a a uh, meal a day, or uh, take an entire day and fast during that time. Uh, it's, if you've never done it before, uh, it's always a tricky discipline to start, but it is rewarding and fruitful in the practice, so I encourage you to do that. All right, well, with that being said, let me invite you to open your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, to the book of Genesis. We are starting off a brand new series here at Central, uh, and we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. Now, I have to be honest, I have been looking forward to this series for quite some time. I've been looking forward to diving into Abraham, uh, knowing that we are going to get here because I'm excited to walk through this passage, to walk through really his whole life. We're going to spend a number of weeks walking through his life. And now I know I probably say that at the beginning of every sermon series that I have been super excited to get here. And th that's true. I have been. I, it's one of my great joys to be able to actually open the word of God and dive in and figure out what God is saying to us. But Abraham in particular, and now you might say, well, what's the big deal? Here's this guy. His name's Abraham. He lived, you know, something 4,000 years ago on the other side of the world. It's hard to find someone who's more remote from us than that. Why should we care about Abraham? And the answer is, well, we could give many answers, but let me start with this one. And it's going to sound a little bit like I'm exaggerating, but, but go with me for a moment. I'm going to say that Abraham is one of the most significant and influential people who has ever lived on planet Earth. That sounds like an exaggeration, doesn't it? That sounds like, well, okay, maybe, maybe you're just a little bit biased, but, but think about it for a moment. 
on earth today, there, there are three major monotheistic religions. That is, religions that would claim there is only one God, right? Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And now there's a number of other monotheistic religions that kind of come off of there, but on earth today, those three account for something like 55% of the world's population. That's an incredible amount of people, 55, around 3.5 billion people on earth today, and all of them would look back to this man, Abraham and his encounter with God as being a defining moment in how they understand both God and the world around them. Think about that. For 4,000 years, this man Abraham has had an impact on how people think about the world and about God. That's an incredible impact. Think about, th think about people who are important and significant, influential figures today. Right? You can think of presidents, you can think of celebrities, you can think of news reporters, whoever else, right? All the, all the famous people alive today. I mean, next to the impact that Abraham has had on our world, they're nothing, they're insignificant. Despite the fact that as soon as we turn on the TV, that's all we see. Actually, the truth is, Abraham has had a greater impact than all of them. And in fact, continues to have an impact to this day. I doubt in a hundred years that anyone is going to care about what President Trump tweeted that day. All right? It's just not going to be influential, despite the fact that that consumes so much of what we think about from day to day. So I think it's worth us taking some time to think about this man, Abraham, how he lived, what he did, how he understood God, because he is a massively important person just on earth, but also, as it turns out, a very important person biblically. Right? Throughout the Bible, people are continually looking back to this man, Abraham, and how his encounter with God shaped what happened next. In fact, more important than just the man is actually the God who called him. See, over these next couple of weeks, what we're going to realize is that Abraham wasn't influential because he was so amazing, because he did so many cool, interesting things. Actually, no, Abraham was really an ordinary guy. He just served an extraordinary God who did amazing things through him. The lasting impact of his life is not because he did so much great stuff, but because God did so much through him. So I am excited to actually walk through this passage, through this story, through this guy's life, because actually this is how God has impacted us here today. And so I want us to take some time to think through what God is doing in the life of Abram and as it applies to us. So if you have your Bibles open, let me invite you follow along with me. We're going to start in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. This is kind of the, well, it's the prelude to Abraham, right? It's the prelude, uh, the, the before information that we kind of need to see before we get into the real story starting in chapter 12. So follow along with me. Chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Ahor, Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. 
Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to, uh, to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. All right, well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that you speak to us, that you have been working in history and affecting our lives for thousands of years. But Father, you've brought us here this morning so that we might hear your word, that we might be instructed by how you have called Abram, how you have led him, the promises that you gave to him that were for us in Jesus. So Father, I pray as we spend time in your word, would you open up our hearts to hear and apply what you would have for us? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are beginning this story, and, and right off the bat, it kind of seems like, like not a lot is really happening, right? God calls Abram, okay, go. Abram goes, right? That, that was pretty much everything that just happened in what I read. God said, okay, I want you to move. Abram moved. And end of story. But actually, I'm going to say that there's a lot more going on here, as you, as you might expect. God is actually doing quite a few things and preparing a lot of what we're going to see later on in the life of Abram, later called Abraham. So this morning, what I want us to see here is, is first of all, just the, the promises that God gives to Abram. Right? God makes him these promises and then calls Abram, okay, now I need you to actually step out in obedience. So we're going to look at what does that obedience look like, and then finally I want us to ask the question, well, what does that have to do with us? How, how does that affect how we would follow after God's plan? So that's where we're going to go this morning. And so let's just, let's just dive into this and go. We're going to look at what it means to trust in God's promises. And so as we begin this story, you can probably already tell we're starting partway through, right? We're starting in chapter 11. We're starting in chapter 12, the story of Abram. But if we're really going to understand why these promises that God gives to Abraham are even important at all, we really need to understand what has happened before here. Right? What has already been going on? How has God been at work through these first 11 chapters? So you're probably familiar, chapter 1, 
Genesis starts off with God creating the earth. He creates the land, the skies, the sea, the water, everything that we see around us, from the fish to the birds to the animals to the plants to even placing Adam and Eve into this creation as the sort of crown on top of what God makes. God places Adam and Eve into this garden paradise, right? Into the garden of Eden, Eden God, uh, God places Adam and Eve. And he, in this garden, it is a paradise. Things are perfect. They have this perfect, unhindered relationship with one another, with the creation around them, and even this perfect relationship with God himself. They walked with God. They spoke with him. They talked with him. They asked him questions. They got to know God in this paradise. But of course, we know that that picture doesn't last very long, does it? Right, chapter three comes along and Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve to say, you know what, I, I know you're following after God here, but, but really, do you, do you wanna keep on doing that? Do you really wanna keep on following after? You should do it your own way. Come on, you, you don't need to listen to him. You just, just eat of the fruit. The only rule God gave them is said, don't eat that fruit is the only thing they were tempted to go and do. And so Satan comes and says, why don't you just eat of it? Don't worry there won't be any consequences to it. There won't be any. Don't even worry about it. But of course, Satan's lying. There were massive consequences to that action. Not even just for themselves, but all of creation around them and after them were affected by that choice that they would actually sin and rebel against God. The consequences were immense. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about putting yourself in heaven at that moment. Imagine you're standing amongst the angels, looking down as Adam and Eve bite into the fruit, actually sin and rebel against God, and then looking over and thinking, well, what is God going to do now? What is his next action? Is this going to be it? Is this God just going to say, all right, that's it. Curses are coming. I'm wiping the board clean. I'm hitting reset. Everyone's gone. Well, actually, the answer is no, because that's not what God had already planned. God had already planned what he was going to do at that moment. And so we read, God says, there are going to be consequences to what you've just done. There's a curse coming on creation. It says childbearing is going to be difficult. Work is going to come with futility and toil. But then God speaks directly to Satan, and this is what he says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, in the midst of God throwing them out of the Garden of Eden, of saying, no more can we have this open relationship because your sin has broken that, has created this, this chasm void between us, or between you and between God. In the midst of all of that, God gives them a hope of redemption. Even in the midst of that first sin, God says, there is going to come an offspring, a, a seed. Literally, the word there is just seed. A seed is going to come later. Some child will come who will destroy all of this, who will destroy sin once and for all, and the curse will be taken out. And so we're left to wonder, well, okay, who is this going to be? There is this promise of a child coming, someone who's going to come, who's going to eradicate evil on earth. Who is that? 
And so we see the, the physical offspring of Adam and Eve. We get Cain and Abel, the first two brothers. And we think, okay, well, maybe. Is it one of them? Abel starts really well, right? He is serving God, and he's faithful to what God tells him to do until Cain, of course, is jealous. And overcome by that temptation, he kills his brother. First two don't measure up. In fact, Cain doesn't conquer temptation. He lets temptation get the better of him. And then really things just keep on getting worse and worse and worse, don't they? If you follow the story, it gets all the way to the story of Noah and the ark. And at that point, God is so fed up with all of the sin, all of the disorder, all the chaos that's going on on earth that he says, all right, that's enough. We've got to wipe it clean. I'm going to start over with Noah and your family. In fact, that's exactly what happens. And so you think, well, okay, is this the offspring? Is this the one who's coming, who's going to make everything right again? He's got it all going for him. Right? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know what? I bet I could follow God. It's just that everyone around me keeps tempting me. Right? It's just that you know, what, society has such bad you know, influences on me. You know, if, if I was just all alone, I would be totally fine. Noah is the perfect example that that's not true. Because if you follow the story of Noah all the way to the end, he doesn't end the hero, he ends up a drunk. It's a sad ending to the story, but it reminds us this was not the offspring that we were waiting for. This was not the one whom we were hoping for. In fact, things continue to get worse and worse, and they don't get better until we get to the Tower of Babel. If you remember the story, they say, you know what, eventually we're just going to we're going to work ourselves up to God. We're going to do it by our own strength, our own ingenuity. So we're going to build a tower up into the heavens. Chapter 11, verse 4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What were they trying to do? They, they were trying to gain all of the blessings of the Garden of Eden by their own strength. They were going to say, I'm going to have a place with God in the heavens. I am going to be able to make my name great, and I am going to have a land to myself. I am going to do all of these things. Of course, the story continues, and God has to come down and look at their tiny, tiny little tower. And God ends up confusing their language and they are dispersed. The story of Genesis so far has just been one attempt after another for someone, some human being to say, I can muster up enough to, to set things right. And again and again, it doesn't work. Yet throughout, there is still this promise. There is this hope that is held out that one day an offspring, a seed, someone will come who will reverse the effects of sin. And that's where we enter into the, the story of Abram. See, the whole story begins to shift here. It goes from sort of the global perspective in the first 11 chapters to now dealing with one family. God's going to deal with this man, Abram. And he's going to talk about how he deals in this family and how that is now going to spread to the entire world. In fact, chapter 11 gives us a bunch of background information, right? We learn about his family, his dad. We find out his brother actually dies early. And so he kind of adopts his nephew as sort of a surrogate son kind of thing. Ends up kind of taking him with him wherever he goes. 
But we learn perhaps what is the most interesting piece of information in verse 30. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now you have to hear that in an ancient Near Eastern culture where your entire value is based on your children and your ability to to raise up sons. Sarai has no children. She can't actually bear any sons, and so Abram becomes to be almost a bit of a joke, right? If you, if you know a little bit about his name, his name, Abram, literally means father of a people, father of a nation. That's what his name means, and so you'd meet father of a nation, and you'd say, where is your nation? He'd say, I don't have any kids. I don't have anyone coming after me, and so here... God begins to work with this man, with a promise of a coming offspring, of a coming child, God decides to use a childless couple. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God chooses this man and his wife, even though there is no human reason, there is no human means by which they are going to be able to accomplish what God had promised, and that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point that God is trying to make here. He is going to be the one who is going to accomplish these things. It's not going to be done by all of our effort and strength and muster to accomplish this. It wasn't going to be done by human means, but by God's actions. And so verse 2, he says, he says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God promises to Abram three things. Right? There's a lot, lot attached to each of them, but there's three main things that God is promising to Abram. First is a land. I'm going to give you a land, so start going. The second was he's going to give him a, a people, a nation, a family. He's going to have offspring. And thirdly, he's going to, uh, he is going to bless Abraham, his, or Abram. His name will be great. In fact, I hope that seems a little bit familiar because the first 11 chapters are essentially all of those things spiraling out of control and now God speaks in the 12th chapter and says, now I'm going to start to reverse all of them. You were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, I'm going to prepare a land, right? There's going to become an offspring who will reverse the effects of sin instead of curse. There's going to be blessing. And so God gives to Abram these promises. And if you're familiar with what kind of goes on after this, these promises come up again and again and again in the Bible. There are these common themes that you see woven throughout all of the different books that make up our Old Testament. In fact, we're going to see them more throughout the life of Abram. So I'm not going to unpack all of them right now for you. But let me just simply say this. Let's have an idea where do these end up going The answer is, well, we're in church. They end in Jesus, right? That's the answer we always give. But actually, that that is the answer. That is actually where these things are going. So let's just just take one, for instance. Just take the, the, the promise of a land. You might say, okay, well, what does Jesus have to do with the land of Canaan, right? That's kind of where Israel is right now. 
What does that have to do with, with that physical land? And I would say the promise was far more than just a physical border. The promise was more about more than just square footage or a political boundary that is drawn. Actually, what God here is promising is a land where he would dwell with his people, where they would be at peace, where they would be in security forever that will not be taken away. In fact, that's exactly the promise we find in Jesus, that we actually will have a place with God forever, that we will dwell forever in a land with him in heaven. In fact, that's exactly where this promise is going. It's found its fulfillment in Jesus. And in fact, we could walk through all of these different promises. He is the one who has crushed the head of Satan and he is the one who has blessed us immensely and reversed the effects of sin. But see, what I want us to understand before anything else here, what I want us to see is that God actually can be trusted that his promises are true, that he actually does work them out, even though right now for Abram, these look like they will never happen, right? How could they? How could any of these promises come true to this man Abram right now? They can't, but in God they do, and they have been fulfilled. And so the call for us, trust what God is doing. Trust that God is in control, that his promises, that his uh, Yeah, that his uh, covenant with us is going to be fulfilled. It's where we actually can place our faith. Even 4,000 years later, on this side of Jesus, we can see with even more clarity that God does not go back on his word. His word is trustworthy, and we can live our lives in obedience to it. So that's really the first point. We can trust in God's promises because he always fulfills them. And really, this is exactly what we see Abram doing, isn't it? Abram actually takes those promises on faith and begins to step out in obedience to God. He actually begins to walk and do exactly what God called him to do. Verse 1, God says, go. Abraham actually goes. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, so Abraham, or Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land." So not only is Abram getting up and actually obeying what God had told him to do, he's doing this in his mid-70s, all right? This is the time when most of us are like, no, I'm going to be sitting back, I'm going to be relaxed, I'm retired, I'm not doing anything. Abram is getting up and moving his entire family, or not thousands, hundreds of kilometers away, all right? So, uh, and yeah, to make this even more incredible, he doesn't even know where he's going, Right At this point, Abram still doesn't know where he's going to end up. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about this. It says this, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abram packed everything up, loaded the moving van, got in and said, All right, we're going to go. And we're going to stop when God says stop. 
Can you imagine trying to convince your family of that? Like that would be an incredible thing. All right, we're just gonna put everything and we're just gonna start driving and eventually we're gonna come to a place and that's where we're gonna live. Oh, oh, okay, sure. And yet this is exactly what Abram does. Now to give you just a bit of perspective on terms of where all these places are, because I'm gonna assume most of us are not familiar with the ancient Middle Eastern geography. Here's a, here's a map that should go on the screen behind me. And so, here, you can see that Ur is all the way over here in the east. That's where Abram actually starts, right? So chapter 11 tells us that him and his dad, they start going to Canaan, but they stop halfway. They make it all the way up to Haran, okay? Haran is about just under a thousand kilometers away. This was a massive, massive move. If you can imagine trying to pack everything you own and literally walk a thousand kilometers, right? It would be like walking from about here to Lethbridge kind of thing right, with all of your stuff from your house. That was the move they made, but they stopped halfway, and while he's there, God says, okay, now I want you to keep on going all the way down to Canaan, all right? That's another like 650 kilometers away. It's like going from Lethbridge to Saskatoon. So Abram has been moving a, a long, long way, but more than just the amount of space and time that it would take to do that, right? Because that, that is an incredible journey just on its own. You need to realize Abram's doing that in obedience to God, and that actually means he's leaving his family. It means he's leaving his, his family. He's leaving others behind him. See, put yourself in a situation where you don't have any kids who are gonna look after you in your old age and there's no such thing as you know social care, there's no such things as old folks home, nothing. Abram and Sarai were setting out and saying, we're gonna go and we're gonna trust that God is gonna provide for us when we get there. They weren't calling ahead. There was no research that could be done about, you know, what does the, the land look like? What are the businesses? No, they just go and trust God is going to take care of them. But this was a leaving not only to say, okay, we're, we're stepping out of our comfort zone. We're stepping out of our security. It was also a leaving behind of their family. See, the Bible tells us that Abram's family, that they all worshiped idols, as Abram did himself before he heard from God. And so, Abram is not only leaving physically, he's leaving the family tradition, he's leaving the family religion. He is essentially, they would have seen him as turning his back on everything they stood for. This was a hard step. This wasn't just a moving away, but you can always call back home and FaceTime and whatever else we do. No, this was a, I'll probably never see you again, and I'm going to worship a completely different God. I'm going to actually have to take a step out here, and it's really genuinely going to cost me something. See, I think that's exactly the point. It's the point we need to see here this morning. Actually, to follow out in obedience to God means it's going to cost us something. It's going to have a, a toll, a, a price to pay Jesus even tells his own disciples, Matthew chapter 10, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, actually, to follow me means you give up everything. 
It's a commitment to actually leave everything else behind that Jesus, that God is going to be the first priority in our lives and that obedience means sometimes we have to step out and say, there's a cost to following that I will pay. Jesus later on talks about his, or talks to his disciples about counting the cost. What is it going to take to follow after God, to faithfully obey what he calls us to do? For us, it might mean that we, we do put strain on our relationships, that those around us that we no longer can just simply see eye to eye, but actually we have to call and say, I'm going to obey Jesus even if it means you're mad at me sometimes. What are we willing to give up to obey God? And yet, here's the thing. I think if you were to ask Abraham today, and you were to say, okay, what did you all give up? I think he'd look at you and he'd say, what are you talking about? I didn't give up anything. I gained everything. This wasn't a matter of, oh, I gave up so much that I am just, woe is me and here is all the things that I've given up. Abram's going to look and say, no, actually, look at what I've all gained. Look at how much I have now that I've obeyed Jesus. Well, he wouldn't have said Jesus at the time. We would. Look at what I have been given in following after God. See, I think that's exactly the reason. Verse 7 It says, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. When Abram's actually in the land, when he has this promise, you know what he does? He doesn't complain about everything. I can't can't believe you made me move all the way out here. I don't know anyone. I left behind all my family, everything else. No, his response is worship. His response is praise and thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for everything that you have provided for me. See, I think that's what we need to see, is that actually, yes, there is a cost to following after Jesus. Yeah, there are things in our lives that get difficult, that get strained, that even get, uh, yeah, that are difficult to give up. And yet, in the end, we're giving up nothing but gaining everything. And that's really what I think we need to see from this story. Let us never complain about how much we've left behind. Rather, let's worship and praise God for how much he has given. As much as we've given up, we have gained far, far more. See, the last part of our passage simply says, He says, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Abram is simply continuing on with what God had called him to do. He's exploring this land, moving sort of slowly south through uh, the land of Canaan, worshiping as he goes, setting up these altars and praising God. And so the question is then, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? How do we follow God's plan in our lives, because here, clearly, the call on us is not, hey, you need to go to Canaan, right? Go pack up your family and fly over to Israel and and set up shop there. That's not what this text is calling us to do. Clearly, that was what God called Abram to do. So what do we do in response to this text? How do we follow through? How do we obey what God is calling us to do? 
Well, I think the answer comes from the commands that God gives to Abram. See, there's actually two commands here. I don't know if you caught that or not, but God actually has two commands that he is giving to Abram. The first is simply go, all right, leave, go into Canaan. The second is actually in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. See, that last part there is actually a command. God is saying, look, I am going to do things for you. I am going to give you this land. I am going to bless you. I am going to make your name great. All of these things God is going to do. But in response, Abram is to go and be a blessing to those around him. That's what God is calling him to do, that he should actually be spreading, be a conduit of God's blessing to others around him. In fact, if you were here uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jeremiah 29. We looked at this prophecy that Jeremiah gives to, to the exiles who are living in Babylon, if you remember. And they're trying to figure out what are we supposed to do in this foreign land as we're living here. And his word was, seek the welfare of the city. It, Jeremiah says, you... Jewish people who are now carried off into exile, seek after the welfare of the city, of those around you. Seek to be a blessing to others as God has already blessed you. See, that's actually the plan of God whenever he gives blessings. It's never intended that they simply end with us. God doesn't bless us so that we would say, great, I'm blessed Actually, God blesses us so that we would learn and use that to bless others as well and give him all the glory. See, that's why verse 3 actually ends with, and in you, uh, there will be a, uh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's intention in this passage was not to stop with Abram or even his family. It was so that that blessing would be spread to the ends of the earth. That's how God was at work. And that was what God was calling Abram to do with his blessing. In fact, I think that's exactly what we are called to do as well. See, Paul in the New Testament, as he is reading through the story of uh, Abram, comes to this very passage, to verse 7, where it says that God is going to give this land to his offspring. This is what it says, Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, now promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, Paul is reading through this story and he is realizing actually that Abram and these blessings are fulfilled finally in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has brought us these blessings. They're all fulfilled in him. The forgiveness of our sins and, uh, is found in Jesus, which is the reversal of the curse. And so it makes sense then that Jesus would say and give the same command to his followers as well. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, just as Abram was called to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, so are those who follow after Jesus called to be a blessing, to share the blessing of Jesus with all nations on earth. It was the same trajectory that God had in mind when he called out this one man, Abram, go. So he has sent Jesus, one man, so that his disciples might go and share the blessing of Jesus Christ with those around him. So how should we apply a passage like this? It means that the plan of God that began in Abram was for the world to hear and experience the blessing of the removal of sin. It means we are called to go and share that good news with the families around us. Because all the families of the earth actually extends to the family who lives next door. It extends to the families of our coworkers. It extends to the families we meet in the grocery stores, in the park, as you hike Mount Tom, wherever you end up. God is looking and is placing you there that you might be a conduit of his blessing, of the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. See, the cosmic plan of God to reverse sin actually extends to you and me here and now. God has in mind that the blessings of Abraham are yours in Jesus Christ, not so they would stop with you, but that they might spread to all around you to the glory of God. That's how this applies to us. God is still working out these promises here today, calling the church, the disciples of Jesus, to extend the blessing to others. So the right response to a text like this, share your faith. Tell others the amazing news that all of the curse of sin will one day be eradicated and wiped out. All the reminders of that curse, all of the, the, the sin, the sickness, the suffering, every cancer diagnosis, every death of a loved one, every pain and weakness eradicated and gone in the blessing of Jesus Christ. See, that is the good news that we get to share. That's what God had in mind in calling Abram, in blessing Jesus, in that, in that blessing coming to us. Every reminder of the curse of sin should call us back to the one who took the curse for us. When Jesus actually took that curse on a cross, when he died in our place, when his heel was bruised, but the head of Satan crushed. From the moment sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve sinned, God has been working to redeem us out of it. And the amazing thing is that we get a part to play. See, I said Abram was no one extraordinary, and he wasn't. He was a guy living his normal life in a land just simply following around after his family, doing the things he was supposed to do, yet God called him and did extraordinary things through him. And in that same vein, we get to play a part in the plan of God. It's not because we are so amazing, not because we are just, you know, the most convincing people we've ever met. No, 
It's because we serve an amazing God who has blessed us that we might bless others around us. God has done all the work. Let us trust in his promises. Let us walk in obedience to him as we follow out the plan of God's redemption of this world in Jesus. We have the privilege of participating in what God has been doing for millennia. So this morning, what I want to do is invite you into that. And this morning, as we close, as we invite uh, the band to come forward again, I'm going to pray for us, but I want us to respond in the same way that Abram did. Abram heard the promises of God, the amazing blessings and the reversal of that curse of sin that is ours today in Jesus, so let us worship in light of what God has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for the amazing work that you have done. And Lord, that you would include us in your plan to redeem fallen sinners. Oh Lord, we are not worthy of being able to be a part of what you are doing. Lord, we cannot do it of our own power. But Lord, would you find us faithful to the task. That we would joyfully Look forward to proclaiming what you have done and the good news of redemption out of the curse of sin. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Please.